Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Bridget. Thank you. We'll get you to be a chorus soon enough. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, uh, April 13th, 2016. Thank you for those of us joining us on School Vacation Week who are in town. And welcome to those watching. I know at least a couple of friends are watching in Maine um, this presentation out of interest. So it is not only School Vacation Week, but it's National Volunteer Week. And I just would be remiss not to mention that uh, in the accounting of volunteer hours for Chad, um, and these folks woefully undercount, undercredit themselves for their hours. They're supposed to sign in, and they're constantly being reminded there are at least at least 1,450 hours of logged uh, volunteer hours with Chad, which, if you think about it, is a little bit less than four hours a day every single day of the year, 365 days a year. So when you see our friends on the units and then the warden and the clinics, uh, thank our volunteers, of course. <clears throat> and then this morning... Um, we continue our stellar run of April visiting speakers, and it's a true pleasure and joy to introduce a real friend, um, a genuine friend. Lindsay Thompson is a native of, of New York, who I met in 1997. We're both interns here, she having finished her MD degree at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons, having been an uh, undergraduate at Brown University previously. She trained here, receiving a master's degree in clinical evaluative sciences from what was known as Dartmouth Medical School, or CECS, before we changed our names to TDI in the Geisel School of Medicine. Um, she is currently in Florida, at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where she is the Associate Director of Clinical Research for the Institute for Child Health Policy and an Associate Clinical Professor of Pediatrics and Health Outcomes and Policy. She is the Physician Director of Quality in, in, in Outpatient Pediatrics, as well as uh, has a leadership role in their uh, Clinical uh, Translational Science Institute. I um, was going to embarrass Lindsay by listing the number of publications that she has, but friends don't do that to one another, but I can't <laughs> help but note uh, a few things, one of which was when Dr. Levin saw her in Cameron's office this morning, he remarked that a star has returned, which is indeed true, and uh, Alan Riziki was able to enjoy uh, dinner with us last night, as well as Diane and George and Carol Little, and, and Alan wouldn't have missed dinner because uh, Lindsay's one of his special people, and I, I share that feeling. She's been recognized in Florida as well as the Teacher of the Year for the Pediatric Residency, uh, as well as Exemplary Teacher Award. This is not a surprise. And uh, going back in time, in 2001, upon graduating from our program, she was both the Resident Scholar Award winner, and the Continuity Clinic Award winner. And we could talk at length about also her leadership of Continuity Clinic at the University of Florida. But I found it striking that she won the Ross Award in March 2001 from the New England Perinatal Society uh, in Manchester, Vermont, for a study on are more neonatal, neonatal intensive care services always better, which is now a project that she collaborates with Dr. Little and David Goodman on in a national way. So everything comes full cycle. Welcome home, Lindsay. Thank you. <laughs> It is amazing to be here. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Great. Let me just orient myself and make sure I've got this. Okay. So you're on there. 
So good morning. I um, have not stood here um, for 15 years. Um, the last time I was here, I was a senior resident giving an auspicious on an auspicious morning, not an auspicious talk. It was an auspicious morning because it was the day after a presidential debate where the concept of hanging chads was introduced, and we all thought that was so funny. Um, and now I live in that state that brought up that whole problem. And we're also in another very um, interesting presidential year, which I got to talk to bre at breakfast um, with Keith and Nina about. It's, it's it's going to be very interesting. Um, but I was here back in the day um, with all the greats who are still here, Diane, Alan, George. Keith, Nina, and I used to sit right where, where Bill Boyle is. And, we, <laughs> and um, I'm glad to see that there are some of the residents here. I get to meet um, with you later. Um, but this is not going to be necessarily your typical Grand Rounds. I'm not going to talk about a disease state and drill down to the molecular level um, and get to an understanding. This is more of a mundane problem. This is a problem with electronic medical records, something that we all deal with every day. But I'm going to hopefully tell a story that makes sense and draw on a bunch of different um, avenues, including quality improvement, systems research, organizational theory, health policy, ethics, health literacy, implementation science, to, to name a few. I'll use this. There we go. And I have no financial relationships to disclose or conflicts of interest to resolve. But I do have one non-financial disclosure. I am actually not a policy expert. I am a general pediatrician. And I'm also a health services researcher. Um, and I spend a lot of my time doing hierarchical models with really smart PhDs. But this is something. Um, more uh, close to my heart. This is from, <clears throat> excuse me, drawing from clinical care, where um, I'll present more as my con as a continuity clinic director, um, with the hat of trying to improve a problem. So as we often do, I will start with a clinical problem. A 15-year-old, this is a true story, presented um, to our outpatient clinic with her mother with a complaint of knee pain. I was working with a resident, and she astutely spoke to both of them, and then the teens separately. And once alone, the adolescent admitted um, to having unprotected sex, but didn't want her mom to know. And the resident did a great job. She did a full exam, um, confirmed that her urine pregnancy test was negative, sent off a GC and chlamydia, and maintained confidentiality, as well as doing a good orthopedic exam. She wanted, um, she encouraged the adolescent to discuss with her mother um, that she was now sexually active, but the teen refused. Um, and this was a couple years ago. This was in um, 2010 when not everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. So the team gave um, a phone number for follow-up. And specifically, they worked it out that the resident was to call after 3 p.m. when she was going to be home with any needed um, follow-up. We thought we had done a great job. Three days later, the committee was positive. All the other cultures were negative. The resident called, identified herself to the mother when she answered. As we've all had the uncomfortable um, feeling, the mother didn't understand why the doctor needed to speak directly to the adolescent. Um, but she acquiesced um, and called her daughter to the phone. The teen came, the resident and the teen um, spoke on the phone about the diagnosis treatment, brainstormed how to get the medication, hopefully treat her partner, get everything all set. And as the resident was saying goodbye, she heard a very distinctive click before the, other, before the child hung up. Um, and then hung up herself and looked at me in horror. <laughs> um, and by the way, the knee pain resolved with rest. Um, had we achieved confidentiality? 
No, of course not. This was um, a huge breach of confidence, but an inadvertent one. And I think we all know that telephones are ripe for communication um, errors that can happen. You could have a disconnected phone and never be able to reach the teen. You can have a misidentification. I've had parents pretend that they're the teen. Um, you can leave information on the answering machine incorrectly. I think we all have had uncomfortable feelings like this over time. So I wanted to prove this. Um, this was in 2010, and we had just implemented EPIC in our outpatient clinics, and I caught wind of something called a patient health record that maybe would facilitate communication within <laughs> EPIC that we could contact our teens about. So this was something that I wanted to pursue. With due diligence, I looked up the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine, the AAP statements on how to provide confidential and high-quality care to adolescents. And this is a list that I think we're mostly familiar with, that adolescents need to have lots of different aspects of their care that may be different from what um, younger children need. And confidential care is important, but perhaps not the, the only aspect that we need to take care of. We need to make sure that they have regular health care visits, both private and confidential care screening, early identification, and referrals for behavioral, emotional, and medical risks, counseling for these same problems, and provide all of this in a culturally sensitive way um, and partner with the teens, families, and the communities themselves. Easy enough, right? So I embarked on what I actually thought was going to be a really simple process of just adding this one feature when we were able to and moving forward. And how naive was I, thinking that we could um, quickly do this process. Um, but as you may know, Epic has something called MyChart. Um, and MyChart is a password-protected uh, form of communication between patients and providers. Um, and I then um, thought that we'd be able to move quickly forward. Um, but I was wrong. So that's why I'm here today. Um, I'm going to divide my talk into three parts. I'm going to talk about personal health records and some of the history um, behind it. I'm going to talk about the um, historic and current views of um, personal health records in pediatrics and why sometimes this is very difficult when we talk about um, children and adolescents. And finally, if you buy into my argument uh, that my chart's a good idea, what then? How can we make it better? You probably also know that um, electronic health records are here to stay. They're an absolute expectation in all hospitals, academic settings. But they haven't been as much a part of the outpatient world um, until more recently. Um, I love medical epidemiology. That's what um, CECS trained me best to understand. Um, and so this is an epidemiology slide of the development of any electronic health record in the outpatient setting over the past uh, 10 years, well, from 2001 until 2013, the most uh, current information that I could find. Um, and what I think you can see on the top bar, the blue bar, is about 80% of practices have some form of electronic health record. But only 48% or 50%, half, have a fully viable system. So it's still lagging behind what inpatient services have. But one of the best aspects of um, an outpatient system is this possibility of having a personal health record attached um, to their um, EHR. By definition, a personal health record doesn't have to be embedded inside the EHR, and this is uh, more. This is what my IT folks tell me is very important, but it has to link functionally. So, what is an ideal uh, personal health record? Excuse me. If you have a functional and accurate uh, electronic health record, hopefully these qualities can be a part of any um, pediatric personal health record. It should be lifelong. It should integrate information across all domains of um, where children interact. 
It should be controlled by the patient themselves or their family, private, secure, and should facilitate communication. And this was actually promulgated in 2009 um, in pediatrics. Um, so these ideas have been around for a long time. And yet, it still remains a hard, time to, uh, a hard problem to implement. So over time, with the increasing electronic health record use, so has um, this use of personal health records. And as you can see, in about 2007, only 1% of anybody, not just children, adults, um, had access to an internet-based um, personal health record. But seven years later, about a quarter of adults, and um, certainly millennials, again, still not our pediatric target population, about half want to have immediate access on their smartphone. So these are things that are evolving over time, um, but still requires some work. And to do so, I want to take us back 20 years. So believe it or not, 20 years ago is when the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act was enacted. It's hard for me to believe that this um, seems like it just happened. We're all still reacting to it, but it's 20 years ago. Um, and the reason I bring this up is twofold. This act um, obviously dictates much of how we um, approach patient um, safety and quality these days. But it's very interesting that its actual name um, and, um, and derivation actually came from the idea, if you switch jobs, you should be able to bring your insurance with you, um, hence the word portability in the title. And that actually um, is highly linked to this idea of a personal health record. Um, but its legacy, and what I think we have um, spent more time with over time, is the, what they call Title II. The second part of it is that what they had at that point hoped were simplifications for electronic health exchange. They had four different um, aspects to it. They wanted to establish national standards so that everyone was inputting data that could be uh, in a similar format. They wanted to make sure that the security and privacy of the health data existed, and that, I think, is our, um, our biggest luggage that we carry from this. Um, but they, at that point, envisioned an electronic data exchange, I think almost like a national data exchange, national health service, without it being um, obviously a national health service. But I think that was the original vision of the um, HIPAA Act. And then they did tag on a very important part, that every person, quote, has a right of access to inspect and obtain a copy of protected health information in the format requested. And that has, um, you'll hear that again and again. In 2003, the Institute of Medicine um, got their uh, input into this um, developing EHR system. Um, and anything that the IOM uh, talks about, I think, is worth, um, worth discussing. And they listed eight qualities that an EHR has to do. And I won't go through them all, but I point out numbers five and six, where they reiterate the importance of electronic communication and connectivity and patient support. So it's really being um, affirmed that we need to, as healthcare institutions, make this a strong aspect of anything that we do with EHRs. And from that, the idea that personal health records um, are, in fact, portable, like the original HIPAA in, um, idea, two different venues of what, the way that this information could be passed emerged. The first were actually health repositories. And this could either be an individual doing it or your doctor initiating it. And these were web pages um, where we would actually manually input our data and then be able to tell your new physician where to go to find your information. Or conversely, a physician might have all of their forms and recommendations on a, a, an individualized website um, for information exchange. Um, and at the same time came this idea of a patient um, care portal. And the idea of a portal 
the word is, means window. It's not access to your entire medical chart, which the repositories were hoping to be. This is the idea that um, you could select for the patient what they're able to see. Um, and that has become an emerging concept that, that we still uphold. And as we all know, um, this is the, the way that it has really evolved over time. It is a web-based web -based linkage to our electronic health record that patients use. I use Epic as my example because I know you all use it as well. In 2008, they had na nationwide about 2.7 million users. That increased sevenfold by 2012. And I found out from my own institution, which is a large institution, but I didn't realize it was this large. As of last month, we have 100,000 users of my chart just within our healthcare system alone. So it's obviously grown massively. But now we have the issue of, of actually making it usable. One last um, legislation that I will introduce to you, I think it's also familiar. It is the High Tech Act of which meaningful use emerged. This came out in 2009, um, and it set goals about how we deliver healthcare, not just the information technology itself. Before they were saying you have to use an EHR, didn't matter what, how you use it, just use it. And now they're trying to define further how we use it. And you know, this is going to sound familiar, improve quality, safety, and efficiency of patient care, engage patients and families, improve care coordination, make sure you have uh, privacy and security for personal health information, and the lofty goal of improving population and public health, just on the side there. Um, the way this was implemented, I think lots of us realize, um, was very difficult on healthcare systems. Um, it had significant punch, this law, because not only did it provide incentives for programs who entered early, it, there was a huge threat of um, penalties for anyone who entered in this system late. And so institutions, depending on when they first adopted an electronic health record, would opt in and then progress through the three stages listed on the bottom. Stage one was about in 2011 when most institutions started their first um, effort towards meaningful use. Um, 2013 was where you're supposed to start advanced clinical processes, and this year was the year that we were supposed to have improved outcomes that we could measure for our patients. And as I'm sure you all know, um, every institution has had to devote significant time and energy and funds to meeting meaningful use requirements, and it had lots of us in um, a frenzy. For me, trying to implement the patient um, health portal, I thought this was brilliant, because not only did I have my interest, but I had legislation driving me forward. And that was true until we started looking into the details. I'm not going to go through this whole slide because it's dense, but what it was talking about is that with each of these three stages, um, the impact specifically on patient portals was fairly precise. This was a very well-characterized um, system, and it sounds great. So for example, just to begin with, um, in stage one, the whole idea of a patient portal was to increase use um, of information to engage patients and their families into the care of their patients. Sounds great. Then we're supposed to allow more patient control data in stage two, and finally, get to the point where we can provide self-management tools, including interactive personalized monitoring and, and even coaching tools uh, therein. And again, this to me is brilliantly written. It is uh, very accurate until you start thinking about children. How can, um, you know, how can we separate children from families? What information do we put on? All the things that we have nuanced in face-to-face -face visits becomes very difficult to operationalize on, um, on a, an electronic level. And I, I will come back to this in a minute. Just as a side note, um, you probably have all heard that as of January, um, the CMS, the, uh, the organizational body that runs Meaningful Use, announced 
that the meaningful use program as it has existed, and I quote, will now be effectively um, over and replaced with something better. Um, that something better has not been announced. I actually looked as of uh, two days ago just to make sure that I wasn't outdated by the time I was giving this talk. So it remains to, remains to be seen. The idea is that we, um, they realize that the Meaningful Use Program, despite its very good intentions, has become a bean-counting function for um, institutions to do, is checking off what they ought to do instead of what they want to do. <clears throat> and so the idea is that it will be customized for individual practices, and yet it still remains unknown are we gonna, if you never started, are you going to have the penalties that they worried about? Should institutions keep tracking all this meaningful use um, uh, data that we were supposed to be tracking? It, it remains unknown. What is known is that Epic is here to stay. Um, this slide is a, a little bit outdated. It's two years outdated. It's from 2014. But it shows the market share of different um, EHRs across the US. Uh, the royal blue color is Epic. It holds 20% of the market share. Not shown here because I could not find it in a nice display. Um, I have heard that of all academic centers, 85% are using Epic. So um, all of us have invested significant money into the Epic platform. Um, and so it's here to say it's something that we need to befriend and um, something that I hope that we can design further to really uh, make use. Hopefully, the legacy of meaningful use will not just be Facebook status updates, but that um, now that we're sort of liberalized from it, that we will actually be able to use different aspects that were encouraged by a meaningful use and really make them good. And that's, um, and that's where I've been able to continue with this idea of a patient portal um, and being liberalized from having to do it exactly the way they say we should do it. So on to the next section. Um, I am going to talk now more directly about children and adolescents and our personal health, health records new. The concept of patient-oriented sources of health information, especially for our children, is not new. We all remember the vaccine cards probably not the residents, you may never, have never seen these yellow cards. <laughs> um, they're used internationally still. These are, were our standard of care um, for immunization practices before any state registry existed, before Epic existed, and it was truly the way that we in primary care would figure out what, what shots that people needed, and it was completely reliant on the parent remembering this little yellow card. It did fold up and fit into a wallet, um, but we probably only ever saw them about 50% of the time, so most of the time we were in a data-free mode, and yet we still you know, thought that the parents should have that responsibility. These have modernized into postcard vaccine reminders you know, that some clinics send out. We also have the dreaded daycare and school forms that we have to fill out. So these are all ways that um, we have physical reminders of, of a personal health record. So it's, it's certainly not a new concept. We've modernized somewhat with automated or personalized phone recalls um, for appointment reminders, again, trying to help the families do some of their work. And certainly, we can always um, request medical records, either digital radiologic records or, and it remains always a standard of care, that a parent can call any institution and request a hard copy of the, electron of the patient's um, chart whenever they want. Hopefully, every institution knows that when it's an adolescent that they can modify it. Um, but still, it is nonetheless um, a standard of care that we've always accepted. But we, do ha we have known for a while that we have to um, be careful what we how much information we give parents. First of all, it can be overwhelming. It has to be in sizes that are understandable. But it probably shouldn't contain the entire medical record at any given time. So switching again um, back to this epic, this my chart 
um, concept, my, my chart requires choices. I've understood from a, a conversation with Keith Loud that um, it may be that different institutions are offered different choices on what to pick from my chart. But in essence, there are six different tabs that you can have, what medications a child is on, what allergies, immunizations, history test results. And that all seems um, very straightforward, again, until you think about children and adolescents in particular. Should a parent be able to see the problem list of a teenager that says unplanned pregnancy? Should a child see a family history of schizophrenia that they, perhaps they didn't know about? These are all questions um, that you need to grapple with. So again, the, the dirty work becomes very difficult to do. So I adopted um, a framework set up by Megan Moreno. She's currently out in um, Seattle. She's an adolescent health provider who wrote a paper in 2009 about online health services for adolescents um, and characterized using um, six key informants across the US um, the benefits and then the, ultimately the barriers of having a patient health record. She was talking in general about health services online, and I've adapted it here just for the personal health record. But as I've been trying to allude to, I think the benefits are great. You could have um, improved confidentiality, improved health literacy, or at least an understanding of health literacy, improved access to and relationship with your provider. You really can get an in-depth, potentially, relationship that way. You can provide better uh, preventive screening. And certainly, for chronic care management, you might be able to do a lot of that online through a personal health record. But there are significant barriers. As I've um, spoken already, the medical information is very complex, and which aspects of confidentiality should be um, invoked is, is a very difficult um, question to answer and is very institutional specific. Um, you want to access different parts of your chart. You need to take into consideration some of the developmental issues of um, the target population, whether it be young children or, or adolescents. Um, parents may offer a lot of pressure to always have access to every aspect of their child's life, which is, as a um, parent of an 11, 14-year-old, I certainly understand. Um, and then uh, the same benefit of communication between patients and providers could end up being a barrier. It could end up being not the format that you want. It Maybe it's mis you type it one way and a patient uh, misconstrues the information compared to a face-to-face -face visit. But I believe it's actually the healthcare organization concerns that limit most of us from implementing MyChart for, for teenagers um, and younger children specifically, because there's so many things um, that could go wrong that we tend to, to stop ourselves before we've, we've even started. So what are some of these institutional decisions and great concerns um, that are, we all seem to share, but collectively as an organization seems to get even more dis difficult? We're pediatricians. We know that age matters. Um, so certainly things have to be tailored for different ages. Every state has their own law. Um, and um, you need to look up your specific state to make sure everything is legal within your own system and, and hopefully have an attorney to help you to make sure that you're following that law well. And then, if you get through all that, I've um, seen, and in a very non-systematic way of, of constantly looking at Google and what other institutions are doing um, with their own portals, that really three models have emerged that um, institutions choose to use to implement a, a patient health record for teenagers. There's a confidentiality model, there's a family-oriented, and then a parent-oriented model. And I'll go into these in more detail. The first is age. Most institutions have chosen roughly between um, 0 to 11 to count as a child and 12 to just before their 18th birthday to count as an adolescent. 
zero to 11 year olds, that is when a parent is the full proxy. So you have to sign them up and link them to their uh, child's epic chart, and then the parent can see the full portal that you decided for them to see, um, and it functions quite well. But then what happens, as soon as the child reaches whatever age the institution decides, and I've seen 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 in all different institutions, but on average it seems to be, or at least the median seems to be around 12, that that cuts off. So a parent who has been using my chart regularly for their child suddenly has no access. Um, often what happens is then you come to the, your a well visit or some other visit um, and you can re-sign up in some capacity where the, the parent formally or informally gives consent for the child to have some kind of different relationship um, online with their provider. And this re-enrollment really can be um, cumbersome because you don't always get the adolescents into your clinic. But nonetheless, if you've suppressed that, then you have to start looking about what your state-specific rules are. In the state of New Hampshire, um, you all have, luckily, um, some laws that I think provide choosing whatever model you want. From what I could find is that healthcare providers um, are required to keep patients' reproductive health information confidential. I did not see how that was further defined um, for if it was just involved with pregnancy. It did not um, talk about specific things like consent for pregnancy, testing, birth control, or abortion, which some states do have. Your state does not make any distinction on age. So um, again, these will all be institutional decisions to decide about age. And under most circumstances, a parent is authorized to provide consent for release of a minor's health care record. So again, um, like most states, a parent can call up to any, at any time to the institution and say, please give me a copy of my child's record. And that remains true um, no, matter what ha no matter how you set up a portal. But nonetheless, I think that you all have laws that will um, permit you to choose whatever kind of um, model that you want to pick. So the first model is the one, I say it first because it's the one that I chose, uh, working with a, a large group for our institution, and that's the one that maximizes confidentiality. In this model, parents must agree to this confidential relationship between a healthcare provider and a minor, and the parent pretty much relinquishes access. They may be allowed a limited view depending on how you set it up, um, and then the, your institution has to decide explicitly what is viewable by the adolescent. So each one of these decisions are, are um, well chosen. The logistics are the same with providing um, adolescent care, even face-to-face. -face. Billing issues can be very difficult um, with privately insured patients. They can get um, information that they should not be seeing. Um, and the, if you require a consent process, that can be very difficult. The parent um, might have to actively sign and the teenager actively assent to start this process. Um, not all institutions have chosen to have an active consent problem. And enrollment will go more slowly if you choose such an active consent problem process. Excuse me. So let me operationalize this for you. This is what we have chosen at the University of Florida. The middle column um, is what the parents can see and the right-hand column is what the teens may see. Um, and some of it may not be surprised. And the parents can see allergies and immunizations. Parents always have to give consent for immunizations, so we felt that that was um, a worthy thing for them to see. They're allowed to request an appointment, but they get no feedback to them if an appointment is made. So that is not a highly utilized function. And otherwise, we've turned everything else off for the parents. The teens can um, make messages, and actually that slide says coming soon, it's something that we now use. Um, they can 
ask for and receive information on, on appointments. Um, they can look at their lab results, their medications, the problem list, the after visit sheet, medical and surgical history, but not the family and social history. We did not feel like that should be viewable um, to our adolescents. Specifically lab results, um, it does not automatically download. You can't just send a CBC to a kid. They're not going to understand it. So we have to manually do each lab test, and I encourage all our providers to actually write something. This is normal. Um, what is never allowed, you can never release an HIV test into the adolescent record. That all, that all is face-to-face. -face. If this makes you uncomfortable, you're not alone. This is um, something that makes uh, a lot of people squirm. Um, why are we catering an entire system to a small part of our adolescent care? Um, why are we catering it to just our highest risk patients? Um, but I ask back, why is it different from a face-to-face -face visit? We know that we often have to invoke confidentiality issues in our face-to-face -face visits. So my preference at this time was to set up a system where we can help that slice of adolescent care. We haven't taken anything else away. Um, the patients, you know, the parents can still call. They can still request to speak to the provider. All the old avenues still exist. But we decided to to tailor it towards the the highest risk children. But there are other options that still make sense. The next model is something that I dubbed the family-oriented model. And this is where your parent and child agree to both co-manage um, a MyChart um, access. The important part is that physicians have to remember, because there's no stop to it, that you may never put confidential material on this portal. If, if in your problem list you have something that the parents should not know about, do you, there's no freeze on um, clicking that. So you could inadvertently still cause confidentiality breaches. A lot of institutions have chosen to do it this way. I would think that the attorneys would be the most worried about this model. However, it is actually um, very much in line with a lot of the AAP recommendations on media use and understanding and teaching children how to interact with the healthcare system. This, I hypothesize that this really helps with transition to adulthood if you have a parent that's able to model how you would interact and you do it together. I think it is an ideal situation. Um, but again, it is uh, one where you, as a provider, have to remember to never place any confidential material therein. The last model is what I call the parent-oriented model, and I believe this model really grew up out of the meaningful use requirements that we had before that have now been released. Um, and this idea is you keep the portal going that they maybe had for their children when they were younger, um, and, you don't, and you don't change it, but you just turn off certain aspects to it. So it becomes really a repository for immunization information. Um, there's no worries about confidentiality because you're not going to put anything on there anyway. Um, and so to me, it is um, definitely satisfies the aspects of meaningful use. But now that we don't have to, to me, it's not really meaningful. There are special populations where this is a very helpful model. Certainly, um, children with significant developmental and cognitive delays, um, you would use the same model of guardianship that a lot of the adult patient portals use. Um, and different populations might tailor it specifically to their clinic in general pediatrics, adolescent, or, or development. They could potentially use this model. If you had a really fluid system, you could go between different models. So if you've bought into my argument that my chart is a, is a good idea, what now? What do we do move forward, and how can we make it really good? So again, naively, I figured once we got through all of this uh, red tape, 
they would just join. <laughs> you know, that they would just come. I'm dating myself using the field of dreams. If, you know, if we built a secure system, they would come. Um, and that wasn't exactly the case. But I had good reason to believe so. As we know, adolescents are fervent communicators. Um, they, you know, 92% go online daily. I won't go through all of these. Um, but, you know, three quarters use Facebook. Almost 80% have phones, and that's higher in the African-American population. And as of these data, a quarter have smartphones. I think it's even more than that now. They text all the time. Anyone who has a teenager knows this. The median number is 60, but that's the median. We know how far that tail can go on the other side. And this, again, is already outdated information, but at least a third go online to get health information, and up to 20% use the internet to gather information about hard-to-discuss topics. So it, it, it's a natural venue to engage children, and it seems to not have any racial or ethnic barriers to it. Nonetheless, um, it, it was not as if we had just opened Facebook after it liberalized itself from college campuses. People didn't flock to sign up to this. Um, the early adopters were not the population that interested me and my practice. They were um, young, meaning 20-something um, males with um, an annual income of $75,000 or greater. But the, the beginning evidence when this was first tried in different places that lower income users felt more connected. And if you could have lower education people actually engage in it, they were asking more questions, all, all good signs um, that I felt. By 2012, um, important studies came out that showed that parents, certainly parents of children with chronic disease, wanted to enroll. However, even at that time, um, they weren't having higher satisfaction of care scores yet. But by 2015, almost all people, and I include parents in this, will sign up for a portal if your doctor recommends it. So what has happened since we started it? These are our most up-to-date data at the University of Florida. Um, we have roughly 2,200 active pediatric patients. Um, about two-thirds of that are younger children, so the parents, and about a third of them are adolescents. Half of them have sent us messages directly, and I'll give you some more data um, in a minute of a cumulative experience. Importantly, we don't find that boys and girls use this differently, which I find particularly encouraging. I have two boys myself, but as we know, adolescents, males tend to interact less with the healthcare system. So if this is a way that we can get them in, again, I feel very comfortable with that. We have a physician champion. So teenagers that come in, 60% of them enroll when they present. Now, a whole host of children don't come in still, but that's a very high acceptance rate that we were, we were very excited about. The current status that I understand here at DHMC is that you guys have gone through many of these steps. You have the multidisciplinary stakeholders agreeing how to implement it. Um, you have the ability to implement it online. You may need to simplify some paperwork, but you've got active leadership, particularly with, with Keith Lab, um, going to pu push this through in a very uh, multidisciplinary way. <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit more about our usage because I think it's really encouraging. Um, these are data from a study that was published in February in the Journal of Adolescent Health where we showed, um, we compared parents of younger children to adolescents and how they were interacting and using um, the MyChart system that we started. So in this row, this is just the, the list of how parents were using it. 
And in this row, I highlight the, the adolescents. And actually, what I'd like to show you is, yes, there's some very, there's some significant p-values with stars. I actually didn't want any stars. Um, I didn't, you know, for being a, someone who's really likes statistics, I wanted them to be equivalent. I wanted teens and parents to use it similarly, and they do not. But I still think that the teenagers use it well. Um, as you can see, there was no gender difference. Again, boys and girls seem to um, use this system frequently, and as do uh, moms and dads. Um, Patient-initiated messages were much higher for parents of younger children. And actually, this was reassuring to many of my clinical colleagues because they thought they would be literally flooded by teenage um, requests for information, you know, even if it was sort of um, a typical teenager question. Um, and that has not been the case. Um, they seem to, uh, the teens are looking up their tests at least two-thirds of the time. To me, that's, that's really good. So they are, you know, how many times do we not connect with our kids? We have to send a certified letter or something like that via telephone. To me, that's very encouraging results. They look at their immunizations the same, but just so you know, that's one of the first uh, windows that you see um, when you cl click into my chart. So the fact that they do that equally just means they're using it similarly. The problem list was much less reviewed um, by the teenagers, um, but the medications were, and that actually the allergies should be starred. Teens didn't care about their allergies. But again, what was most important was how much work was this um, causing my colleagues um, to, to do in addition to the work that we already do. These are numbers. Um, I could not run rates because we didn't have patient-specific information. Um, so I can't generate any p-values for this. But we know that parents of younger children ask for about three times the amount of medical advice, advice that teenagers do. But teenagers do ask a lot of questions. I mean, I think this is highly appropriate um, that we have 1,400 messages from adolescents to the providers. And our adolescent providers rapidly are returning them. But it's not a perfect number because some of them were making an appointment and the, and the providers don't need to message back for that. That goes a different, a different count. Um, some of them use it for refill requests. Some of it used um, to schedules. Um, but the most important part, I think, for adolescent care is this idea of an unread message notification. So you can click the button when you send a MyChart message, let me know in two weeks if, if it hasn't been picked up or whatever time you want. And these are the patients that we would worry, especially with some kind of positive test that you want to treat them for, that they hopefully will get back to you. But six times, our adolescent docs had to find other ways besides an online access, but only six times. Again, I was really quite impressed by that. So if you believe me that they are using it, we now need to understand how they're using it and how to engage them even better. This is a view that you probably are all um, very used to seeing, that our medication list, for example, for patients on our end is, is pretty, pretty boring. Uh, doesn't, doesn't instill us to engage heavily in it even because we have to. For teenagers, and actually for all MyChart users, it looks a little bit better. Um, these are examples of um, tramadol and, and Synthroid, not our most common um, adolescent medicines. But it's better. It's listed separately. Um, but still, it does not engage adolescents the way they want to be engaged. We need to make it, a, it better. And apparently, I, we haven't worked on this side in our end, Epic does allow for this kind of personal customization. So you could imagine, um, as Alan Rizicki was saying last night, you could really get them excited if it was like a game or something where they, you know, they start getting that sweaty look to them, If we could, <laughs> that we could really um, make this better. I've actually applied for a few grants to do this at my institution, and I have not yet get, gotten funded. Um, but if anyone wants to work on it here, um, come see me. 
I really do think that this is a venue where we can have many public service announcements embedded in the uh, MyChart system for adolescents. We all remember our, our uh, fried egg um, perspective. You know, is this something that we should use to scare kids into doing something or persuade them? Um, you need to know the, the characteristics of your own audience. I list a couple other. I don't know if you um, ever were involved in Foursquare. It was very uh, popular with the college-age kid where you go get badges. And the GYT is get yourself tested. And you'd have this badge that um, I thought this would never work. It was a, a huge one and successful public health campaign that if you got yourself tested for HIV, you could wear this badge. I, it's amazing to me how old I am now because, I, again, I, I would never have admit, thought that that would work. Um, text for babies is a very um, successful uh, prenatal and postnatal um, text system. Um, and all of these could be either encouraged or embedded within the, um, the system that you could set up. And importantly, are we overdosing our kids with information, or are we more likely underdosing it? If they're getting 60 texts a day and they get one email, no, who uses email, right? They get one email to go check their chart. We may not be doing it the right way. Epic does have a text function. I don't know if you have it turned on here, um, but you could consider sending a text, go check your my chart. <laughs> you know, it could be something um, as simple as that. And can we really use MyChart as a, a venue for changing health? I believe we can. Uh, we do know that e-health um, has created a wonderful way for behavior change um, over time. This is a meta-analysis back from 2010. Um, and so I can only imagine that it's much greater by now. This reviewed 88 articles on topics relevant to teens, such as smoking, diet, physical activity. The mammogram's not relevant. but. Um, and all of that, there's a G effect size of 0.17, and, and that is significant. And what they did note is that um, the interventions with each episode of involvement, you got a higher effect. So we do need to kind of overdose our kids with messages that we want. Um, so I thought that was important. Specific to adolescents, there have been many articles written about text reminders for vaccination. These are mostly geared towards parents. Um, the adolescents themselves have yet to have um, a lot of um, targeted uh, research on them. But if there are any health services researchers in the room that would like to start this, any residents is a great area for future improvement. I do note a word of caution. This was um, a very simple survey that we did in 2012, right before we opened up uh, my chart for teens, asking parents about what they thought. You know, should should we be able to contact your child about certain topics? And l less than half said, sure, you can contact my kid about immunization, <laughs> sexuality, and annual checkups. They didn't like that idea. And only a third of them said they liked any of the ways that we offered it, telephone, email, text, or, or portals. However, I think it's all in how you present it. There are focus groups that present these kind of portals with the parent and team together, um, where the parents readily pick up and they get the information of why this is an important way to communicate with teenagers. And as such, the adolescent provider that we have at the University of Florida, this, he's a champion. He presents, and we have a short PowerPoint um, presentation on why this is a good idea, and he talks it up, and he actually doesn't doesn't let the patients really leave until they register right there. And, and he promises that he's going to contact them so the kids know that it's coming. Um, so it's, I think that is very important. Um, so if it's the, the who and the how is understood, is, again, what are the, what's the work that we still need to do? As I think I've said a couple different ways today, it's so many little nuances that we have to, to think through, and there's still more work to be done. There's the after-visit sheet, which I'll talk about in a second. There's this messaging that we have established, but we certainly um, 
it need, we need to instill research that looks at the content of these messages to understand how they're using the messages. Um, there's a phone for your, uh, there's an app for your phone, so it is much uh, more likely that kids with smartphones will actually use this. Um, and importantly, we've turned on a hyperlink on that medication page that I showed you before. So if kids are wanting to understand some of the um, possible side effects or reasons why they're on a med medication, you can click through to a link to the NIH of patient-oriented medications. You can do this with a lot of different things. So a kid asks a question about chlamydia, and you are able, you could then embed a, a link to a secure site or something that you would recommend rather than them just Googling um, wildly, which we know they do, and getting false information. You can really control what they get. The after visit sheet um, provides um, another breach of confidentiality, and I'm not going to go into great detail here because I'm focusing on the patient portal. Um, but as you know, it can certainly um, cause a lot of problems if, like this one, another 14-year-old girl who presents to the ED, um, if the parent uh, and child have presented um, something that says, well, you have pelvic inflammatory disease, that can be um, a big problem. A better, oops, excuse me, I went the wrong way. A better solution would be you can actually print out two different ABS sheets. So you could do one for abdominal pain for the parent and another one for the child that has more specific information. But best yet, you can actually embed an AVS sheet into my chart, into the chart that you have with the teenager, and just tell them to go sign on at a different time. You don't have a paper trail. You don't have the potential breaches and confidentiality that can be so worrisome. Going back to the age issue, we all struggle when a child is old enough um, to, to actually make these decisions. I think important research could happen on what age should it be, 12, 13, 14, 15? When should we really give them this power? Um, I argue for the earlier the better. There's a very interesting um, competency in the UK that I have yet to see operationalized where they they take it from a developmental perspective. And I'm not going to read the whole quote, but um, I think that this is something that we could test um, with, within my chart. You could ask kids sort of different, different questions of when they might be ready um, to, to answer bigger things within their health, um, health record. I think it's a very interesting question how we document sexual identity. So if these kids, especially if they're having any identity issues or they're transgender themselves, and they turn on their my chart and it says they're female, but they identify as male. I think we're doing a huge disservice to this population, so that's um, an aspect that we will be working on in the near future, um, and certainly how to deal with kids with different cognitive impairments um, as they um, develop over time is a very important issue that we, we should not lose sight of. And finally, what do I think the most exciting aspects are um, of what's coming up with, uh, with my chart in the future? is how to test different aspects of um, the developmental goals that we really want to, uh, them to achieve before they get transition to adulthood. We want to make sure that our kids not only literate, but are they health literate? And are there ways that we can um, enhance that over time um, through my chart over the years that you see them? Um, we need to educate kids on how to use the media. If we can give them sites that they trust, Early on, my hunch is that they would go back to them even outside of my chart. Oh, the CDC has really good information on vaccines. I'll go there. What I find very interesting is the idea of doing research within my chart. And actually, I'm doing a small project this summer where we have gotten IRB approval to um, send out a survey through my chart on confidential information. So we will be asking the teens directly that way. We don't have to worry about separating the parent um, from the teen as they answer the survey. And I think it's very important that we tie in the patient portal to different aspects of um, mobile health platforms that are coming up. Uh, Stanford recently published 
um, really important work that they did with type 1 diabetes to do run charts um, through Epic and they got everybody to talk and they can input the data directly um, and that is making significant um, health impact on, on those teenagers but certainly smoking health um, and sexual health I don't know if anyone's ever checked out the Bedsider app it's amazing um, it tells teens what they should be doing at very key moments um, in their sexuality and their development but put in a larger context you always want to ask so what why to me, um, taking the time to implement something that is going to reach most or, or, or ideally all children and all different kinds of children is worthwhile. I think by systematically enhancing access to care and enhancing the quality of care that we provide children, we really will reduce major adult morbidities and mortalities that hopefully um, will go across all children um, in all spheres. I did not do this alone. I had a huge team. This is a, an abbreviated list of, um, of the kids, uh, kids, excuse me, adults that have worked with them to, to make this adolescent portal work. And finally, I would love to hear your thoughts and questions about how you implemented <laughs> here at Dartmouth. Thank you. Hi, I'm an outpatient pediatrician, and I'm also sort of our EDH liaison from um, just outpatient peds. Mm -hmm. But my two questions to you when you said specifically the things that you were allowing parents to have access to, one is the immunizations, like HPV concerns me. With I, I totally agree that in most cases it's great, and parents want to see what their children's immunizations are, but I've had a couple of cases where parents and teens have disagreed about the HPV vaccine. And my other question was, parents being able to send messages that they, on your site it was no, that they can't. In ours currently, parents can send messages and receive them, but they can't see the other pieces of the chart other than I think like immunizations and appointments um, and health forms. But I'm wondering why you didn't feel like parents should be able, because I think parents really like being able to send a message even if they can't see the rest of the chart. So to answer the first one, at least in the state of Florida, and I did not check um, your laws here in New Hampshire, parents have to consent to every vaccine a child gets up to the age of 18. So the HPV was a non-issue, even with all of its um, sensitivities and our lack of ability to get teenagers to get it. Um, we didn't think that that would be private information. There was no way a kid could get it um, without their parent consent. In terms of messaging, actually, now that you say it that way, um, I haven't revisited that. I do think that's an important um, aspect of, of, of the internet access. We reason that the parents still can call, and the parents are used to calling. But certainly now that we're aging up, the parents who have had younger children, my own children included, it's annoying that I can't use my chart to, con uh, to contact their providers. So that's actually, I may actually revisit that question. I think that's valid. So we'll have good, so we'll have an opportunity to discuss our potential our planned implementation with Lindsay with some of our informatics folks at 9:30 and a reminder for the house staff 11:45 with Dr. Thompson to go over sort of the um, best practices and areas where we may have failed in social media use. So um, that'll be a nice session for for folks and, and I guess if there are faculty who want to share their Hopefully their mistakes or missteps when it came to social media use with patients, they're welcome at 11.45, probably at L5A. Just, Trisha, our, our implementation is a hybrid. We currently have the parent-oriented such that at age 12, you lose a lot of access, but you maintain only parental access. And we're hoping to implement a hybrid where both the teen and the parent will have access and 
the parent, the teen, and a provider can choose which level of access each member of the dyad has. Wow. It makes it more complicated, but could allow for both to have full access or one differentially. So, um, sounds amazing. Let me figure that out. Hi, artist. Oh, hi. It's always complicated to understand what the patients can ultimately, the parents can ultimately get. <laughs> We're told they can see all our notes. I keep going in on my provider, and I can't find that. Yet we have patients come back and say, you called my child obese. Uh, uh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, how much, I guess it's for here and there, how much of what's in the different parts of EDH are actually given to people when they request a paper record? This often happens around a divorce, different mm -hmm. times. Um, can the two of you clarify? You know, we've set up a health screening that's supposed to be buried at a place you don't get it given out. Um, can you two clarify that? So I think that's going to be different by institution. If it's paper records, you're relying on the health information staff, the professionals in health and medical records, to redact information that could potentially be sensitive. And that can be a tall order. And the reason why most institutions like ours currently are in the parent-oriented mode as of age 12 is because the information is so commingled that they can't possibly take it out of notes, et cetera, et cetera. So, so under 11, you can go to encounter summaries and you can see the clinical note if you have proxy access to your child's record. As of 12, currently, you should not be able to see that. But fundamentally, Lindsay and I have talked about this, we need to relearn fundamentally how we document, because it's a different world than a paper chart. And we need to learn where within the electronic record things won't ever get released and where they will. And we need to be, I believe, we need to be much more circumscript in our progress note. And it needs to be much more of a soap note and much less past medical family and social history, because that stuff can be more effectively protected if it's in other areas of the EMR. But the progress note, I think, is always going to be susceptible to to release. So Do we think, know what our medical records currently does? They try, if it's paper, and I think increasingly you know, get paper, they try to go through it as best they can, but there's so much information that it's very hard to know if you protect it or not. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the paper chart could have everything. And I know, and it also depends, Lindsay can speak to this also, but I think it also depends on which good installation of ethics you have mm -hmm. and how they're programmed. Yes, and we, we didn't realize, I think we must have different ones because <clears throat> in comparison, I'll, I, can, I can't do that. I can do that. So each institution is very individualized. In terms of um, being upset about the word obesity or something like that, I think we have had that same problem because that's not considered protected information. So the idea of, of parsing out your note, I think, is really important. And certainly, I've heard that there might be some psychiatry colleagues here. I would love to be able to see the psychiatry note and um, be into that glass ceiling, as we all have struggled for years, but obviously not have any of that available um, to, that, to the um, patient themselves. So it's, it must be very complex to program, because it certainly doesn't yet exist in an ideal form. Well, and we've turned our notes into something that's not helpful to our colleagues managing patients. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. That's the other fundamental change, in addition to realize, fundamentally we have to realize that what we document is going to be read by our patients, and so how we use the tool in a different way. I don't know that we're te teaching medical students how to document any differently than we were, and I, I think we have to, because it's a different, it's a different information world. It's a different you, you could start with your entering interns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So artists, if you want to join us at 9.30, this conversation is a pediatric library in anyone else. Thank you, everybody. Not to like.